This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian King-Cargyle. I'm a writer, a book lover, and the director of NIU's STEM Read. And I'm Dr. Kristen Brennison, otherwise known as Hot Pink Tech. I'm an engineer and an educator and the director of professional development for NIU STEAM. Today we're going to be talking about the collision of the Me Too movement with the children's publishing industry. We were interested in the story because we worked with James Dashner in 2014. Because of allegations of sexual misconduct, Dashner was dropped by his agency and his publisher. The controversy over James Dashner and the actions of other prominent male authors came to light because of Anne Ursu's article, Sexual Harassment in the Children's Book Industry. The article was published in Medium and then republished in the school library journal where people used the comments section to reveal the identities of serial harassers. Today we're going to talk with Anne Ursu and Martha Brokenbro about the sexual harassment survey that started it all and about the changes they would like to see in the Me Too movement conversation and in the children's literature publishing industry. We'll also talk with Melanie Koss about how she works with pre-service and in-service teachers and how she is forwarding the conversation of gender and sexuality in the children's literature industry. Martha Brokenbro is the author of two books for adults and eight books for young readers, with several others on the way, including a biography of Donald Trump, Unprecedented, coming in fall 2018. Anne Ursu is the author of several books for young readers, including The Real Boy, Breadcrumbs, and The Cronus Chronicles. Melanie Koss is an associate professor in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at Northern Illinois University and recently received the Senior Faculty Fellowship to work on scholarship, research, and programming with STEM Read. Hey, that's us. That's us. (laughs) Up first is our interview with Melanie Koss, and then we'll be joined by Martha Brokenbro and Anne Ursu. So, Melanie. Yes, Kristen. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about what you do for the College of Education over at NIU in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction. I am primarily the professor that teaches the children's and young adult literature courses, including courses on issues of diversity in children's literature. So I teach pre-service and in-service teachers across those different areas primarily related to, I just said that, to children's literature. Children's literature. (laughs) I work with a lot of people who are in the master's program, getting their master's in bilingual ELL. And so we really talk about the importance of literature and using diverse literature with all students. So talk a little bit about the work that you do with diversity. Is that your research area? What, what are you looking at right now? A large part of my research revolves around representations of diversity because I think it's so important that all of the students in our classrooms are represented in the books that they read. Everyone deserves the right to feel valued and to have themselves reflected back at them. Something I always talk with my students about is the importance of the mirrors, windows, and sliding glass door metaphor, which is from Rudine Sims Bishop. And it talks about the importance of seeing yourself reflected as if in a mirror. And that's not just your physical, but also emotional, just seeing your true self and the importance of a window looking into the lives of others. And then a sliding glass door book is to me, almost the most important because it's when you're not just looking through a window into another culture or another world, but actually being invited through the sliding glass door into that world and somehow being changed by it. And the reason I think all of these books are important is because If you don't see yourself in a book, you don't feel that you're valued. 
And if you're someone from primarily the dominant culture who does not see others, then you also don't see the value in others. So I really think of diversity and the importance of seeing who's represented in the books as critical because (laughs) books are cultural artifacts. We use them. Parents read to their children. Teachers read to their students. And the content that's reflected in the books really represents the content that we value in society. So I think it's important that books represent males and females, that books represent people of all different races, ethnicities, religions, genders, sexuality, age, socioeconomic status. I think we really need to think about defining diversity in a very broad lens because all three of us sitting at this table right now are very different people and have different backgrounds and we have to value and bring what we already know into the table. And one of the things that I noticed growing up is I'm Jewish and it was very rare to see a Jewish character in a book that I read. And if I did, they were one of two types of Jewish characters. They were either in the Lower East Side in the early 1900s, very religious. I'm living in, I was born in the 70s and I didn't, I lived in a suburb of Chicago and we were not very religious. So I didn't ever connect with a contemporary Jewish character. And in addition, a lot of the books were about holidays and they had Bubbies and Zadies that were always giving you food and they always seemed very religious and it was always about the culture. There was never just a Jewish character who happened to be in a book in an authentic way without it being about religion or holidays. And I think that that's something that's still really important today because Matt de la Pena once mentioned the idea of we have diversity, now we want diversity 2.0, which is a lot of books with diverse characters that are included authentically because that's who they are. So it's not an issue book about their gender or their sexuality or their race or their ethnicity. It's just that's who they are. And they're engaging in a story just like any other book would be without a significantly diverse, quote unquote, character. So as you're looking at the wide variety of books that are out there at both the children's literature, the YA, how are you seeing and how are you teaching teachers to use these books within the context of this conversation that's happening, the Me Too movement and sexuality and gender? When I teach my classes, I like to do each week thematically. So A lot of times I'll see a class that's, okay, this is historical fiction week, this is realistic fiction week, or if it's a multicultural literature class, this is our Latino week, this is our Asian week. And I don't like to do that because I think that we're just so much more than just one element. So I like to choose different themes. And one of my themes that I often do cover is gender and sexuality because I think it's important that we analyze critically the books that we read. So usually in the beginning of a semester, we really talk about evaluating books as a whole and really looking at who's writing them, what they're about. And we look for sexism, we look for racism. I have them just sort of begin to really evaluate in a larger way cultural authenticity. But when we do a week on gender and sexuality, I do it in a threefold manner. First, I really think it's important to look at who the protagonists of the books are and who's writing them. So I like to see our boys and girls, males and females represented equally. Or is there a heavier emphasis on one or the other? I also think it's important to talk about um, sexuality because we do have a spectrum in our society. And I think it's really important to talk about 
people's different sexual preferences and that that's just a normal part of life and that that can be represented in books. And I also think it's important to talk about gender and characters who are transgender. And what I think is very interesting is in almost every class, this is the one topic that I always get pushback because people are afraid of parents. And they're saying, well, if I bring in a book about gender and sexuality, then I might get complaints from parents. There are going to be concerns. Is this an appropriate topic to bring into the classroom? I also will ask them to look at the media and see what images of females versus males that they see both in the media. And then I have them look at the books. Personally, I do not like the concept of boy books and girl books. I think that a boy can read whatever book he's interested in. I think a girl can read whatever book she's interested in. And something that I have noticed is books written by female authors tend to have the quote-unquote girly covers. And a book written by a male author often tends to have uh, more generic type of a cover, not generic in terms of bland, but it might be more of an image as opposed to a female with long flowing tresses. And the book could be about the same topic. So it'd be something that's more appealing to all audiences rather than a specifically female audience. Exactly. Or in our society, we do have expectations on males and females. And if you have a book with a very feminine looking cover, you could turn away a lot of men who might not, or boys who might not be confident enough carrying a book around than get picked on because he's reading a girly book. Another issue related to that is the idea of who the protagonists are. There's a lot of people that say, oh, well, boys will only read books with male main characters, whereas a girl will read a book with a male or a female main character. Therefore, it's more important that we have books with male main characters. I disagree. And I think that if that is what is being put in front of them, then that's what they're going to internalize and read. But there are some recent novels out there with some really kick-butt female main characters, (laughs) and boys will read them. So how does that, as, as we hear the conversations that are happening, Heck yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> boys will feel, read them. I didn't want to interrupt your question, but it, just, <laughs> it seemed like we needed a heck yeah there. Heck I agree. Yeah. I, was, I was trying to heck figure yeah. out how to follow up. <laughs> you know, the question I was going didn't quite pack that punch. <laughs> so just like we're having this conversation now. I make my students have that conversation and I make them, sometimes I make them analyze the books that they're reading out loud or that they're sharing with their students and having them say, wait, I'm falling into that trap and now I need to fix it. Well, I I think we've seen that too from schools that we work with, that we get more pushback on books that have sexuality in them Mm -hmm. uh, rather than violence. You know, the one that comes to mind is Ashfall by Mike Mullen. And that book, there's a lot going on in that book. It takes place in the aftermath of the super volcano under Yellowstone erupting. And a 16-year-old boy is trying to get back to his family in Illinois. And he is confronted with lots of violence and cannibalism and cannibals. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that have to happen, but we've had teachers say that they can't have the book in their school because there is a consensual sex scene at the <gasps> end <laughs> between Alex and this girl Darla, who he's shared this entire super traumatic, very violent adventure with, and they, you know, they survive, they love each other, they 
find a condom in the post-apocalypse and they want to be together. And that's the thing that people say, well, they, you know, they have sex in the end. They, they're they talking about condoms. I don't think we can have this. And I'm like, really? That's the deal breaker for you? <laughs> the people eating each other wasn't an issue? But yeah. And- Shouldn't we be concerned about them having safe sex? Because now don't we need to repopulate? <laughs> Put down that condom. Yeah, maybe that what was the thinking? thing. Yeah, you know, they're like, no, we need to we need to rebuild people. Yeah. 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 Sheesh, condoms. What are you thinking? Yeah. <laughs> we need to teach our kids about safe sex. Let's promote condom usage. Yeah. But I, I actually in a lot of the YA books that I've been seeing, I've been seeing a push towards consent. Mm-hmm. So in a Definitely. lot of the in a lot of the uh, romance scenes and the sex scenes, it's it's like, you know, are you good? I'm good, you know. And there's an exchange. I remember in Stephanie Perkins, there's someone inside your house. Yes. So the sex scene was very much like do you feel good? Is this what you want? Yes, yes. And they're saying yes as they're getting into it. And so it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I like where this is headed. And that's the conversation that I think that we should be having because when you look at the Me Too movement and some of the, what's happening in different industries or all industries, it is a lot about consent and about power, one person having power over another and using that power in inappropriate ways. So I, I think that can spark a conversation around what is consent? (laughs) Absolutely. And I think it's interesting when you talk about boy books and girl books and issue books, a lot of the books that dealt with rape were traditionally seen as girl Girl books. books. Like this was a girl problem (laughs) that they needed to be aware (laughs) of when it's really a cultural problem that's much bigger than that. And one of the ways that I try to address that and have my students, many of them who are teachers themselves, think about how to discuss that and how to use literature with their students is by sharing different books and often pairing them. One example is I often will pair a book like Speak by Lori Haltz Anderson or Asking for It by Louise O'Neill. Both of those are books told from the point of view of a female character who was raped and both the rape itself but the aftermath of how they lived as a survivor. And I like to pair that with Chris Lynch's Inexcusable, which is told from the point of view of Kair. He is an unreliable narrator who has been accused of date raping the woman, the girl that he is in love with. So how could he possibly have raped someone because he loved her? So it's a really interesting look both in the head of someone who might have been the perpetrator of a crime and someone who was the victim of the crime. And it leads to a lot of interesting conversations because I think a book like Speak or a book like Asking For It is so important for everyone, including and especially males. It's important for females to read in case they or a friend of theirs have experienced being a victim of sexual assault because it's important to know what's going on and how you might be able to get through it. But for men to read that, it's so critical because I don't think they necessarily realize the harm, emotional and physical, that can be done. And I often get my students who say, well, where are the books about male rape? 
There really aren't any. But one book that I do think that is a male who is the victim, Barry Liga, it's a few years older, but Barry Liga has a book called Boy Toy, which is about a high school boy who is seduced by his female high school teacher. And that's a really interesting as well because it does talk about consent, but it also talks about power and influence. Mm-hmm. But it's the female who is in the power role. So I think that using books like those and having conversations is so important and that is where the conversation starts. And if I have it with my students and they can have the conversation, then they're more inspired to use those books or find other similar ones with their own students. So how are you making connections then between what's happening in books? You know, these are characters. We can we yeah. can relate, we can have conversations around these characters because they're fictional with what's happening in the industry and across in our country, in our world, how do you draw those connections? And do you make your students aware of what's happening in publishing industry and some of the other industries that we've heard about? I think it's important that my students know what's going on in the children's literature industry because as teachers, it's a big part of their role to put books in the hands of their students. So anytime I see, and sometimes I think they get annoyed with me, but anytime I see an article of interest depending on how the class is set up. I always have a class website. So I always have a discussion board on whatever class website I have called Interesting Stuff. So instead of bombarding their emails, their inboxes, anytime I see something interesting, if it has to do with the hashtag we need diverse books, hashtag own voices, hashtag me too. If there's something interesting that relates to something we talked about in class or something that is happening within the world, I always post the articles and links there. And I encourage my students to start doing the same thing. So typically a lot of my students on their own will come across these, uh, an article of interest, and they'll post it there too. And I always start class by saying, Has anyone seen something on the interesting stuff or that they want to talk about that's been happening in the news? Or I end class that way, but I think it's really important. So I do let them know. Another thing that we do talk about, now again, this is a literature class, so we do have to focus on the literature, but literature does not exist in a vacuum. I think a lot of it just boils down to power. And I think what's happening in the industry is especially... I don't want to say younger, but younger, newer to the industry. So a lot of female authors or illustrators who aren't breaking into the industry feel like they have to walk on eggshells a little bit. So if they get the attention of someone who's more of an established author or illustrator or even an established editor that could make or break their career, they may feel that their choices are limited even if they're asked consent where does the consent line, how, where is that line drawn? Because it is about power. Because it's pretty easy for someone to just squash someone new right when they're starting in. Um, so I think that is definitely something that's happening within the publishing industry. And I do try to mention that to my students if it's appropriate. But I think the idea of power and also marketing And we do talk about that. We do talk about covers. We do talk about images in the media. If a conference is coming up, I will bring in and show them some of the panels and ask, what do they notice? I have them look at their Scholastic Book Club catalogs and ask, what do they notice? I have them look at covers. I have them look at authors. So thinking about power, thinking about gender, and thinking about imbalance is something that I do think is important to talk about and to bring in. A lot of the things with the Me Too movement in children's literature really started to pick up steam with the article by Anne Ursu. So what were your initial reactions to that article? Were you surprised or were you like, yeah, it's about time somebody talked about this? 
at some of the conferences, like American Library Association and SCBWI, which is Society of Children's Books Writers and Illustrators, there had been some discussion and incidences of inappropriate behavior. And in the American Library Association, there had been a push to create a policy statement, position statement against sexual harassment in the industry. And people were really starting to police other people. And these topics were starting to come more to the forefront that this type of harassment had been happening. So that conversation had begun happening. And I knew that Anne had sent out a survey asking people to anonymously share if they'd had any type of harassment experience experience themselves at any of these type of industry events. And Anne was surprised at the large number of responses that she got and decided to then write it up and publish it in her original Medium article. And she will talk about, or she has talked about, she didn't want to mention anyone's name. She wanted both the people who were sharing their stories and the people who they were potentially accusing if they had even named someone to remain anonymous because she felt strongly that the issue was not who was harassing others or who was being harassed, that the issue is that it was taking place and she wanted the conversation to start. So I wasn't surprised when I saw the article. What I did find surprising was how quickly it took off the comment section and how heated it got. Reading through the comments, which I thought was interesting because you can tell that there were some people who were immediately going to jump in defense of some of the names that had been thrown out there and or jumped down the throats of people who might have posted a comment. And there were some comments that began to happen saying, you know, well, it was your fault because... There were so many additional articles written or websites and blog posts written that I just found it really interesting to be reading how widespread it was and how passionate people were about it. And it made me really happy because I think this just needs to happen across society in general. And people might think that the children's industry is safe and warm and fluffy because it's about children. And while I would love for that to be the case, we're adults, we're humans. Power and gender and sexuality is still there and it still happens. So I think shining the attention on this is a really good thing. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Heck yeah. (laughs) Heck yeah. Well, Jillian, you came to me one day and said, wouldn't this be an interesting podcast topic to talk about the Me Too movement? And you and I had started talking a little bit about James Dashner and about how this was happening. And I shared with you that I do know... Martha Brokenbro and Anne Ursu, both of whom have been involved. Anne wrote the, that article, and Martha has been very vocal, both verbally and in print, about her support of the movement. And we thought, wouldn't it be great to actually talk to them? So here's our interview with Anne Ursu and Martha Brokenbro. My name is Anne Ursu. I am a uh, children's book writer. I write middle grade fiction. And I'm Martha Brokenbro, also a children's writer. I do picture books, nonfiction, and young adult. And what prompted you to create your sexual harassment survey? As sort of the, the Me Too stories began to come out, uh, a woman named Kelly Jensen did a survey on sexual harassment in the libraries, and she got 
hundreds of responses from librarians around the country on the, the harassment they'd experienced. And she wrote up a really powerful and devastating article for Book Riot on it. And as she was doing this, I kept thinking, oh, someone should do this for children's books. You sort of hear these stories in the ether and these sort of whispers of things that had happened and things that sort of no one was doing anything about. And kind of as the months went on, it became apparent that, oh, I have to do this. <laughs> I'm the one who thought of it, so I'm the one who has to do it. So I really talked to Kelly and I, I kind of just took what she did and, it, you know, I adapted her survey slightly for children's publishing, but I really owe, owe all of that to her. What happened was I gave the survey and I wrote up a extremely long article about the responses and what I was doing was trying to sort of create a narrative about sexual harassment in the industry and frame it in terms of here are sort of the locations for it, here are the problems, here are the things we need to solve. And it was really important to me to focus on the stories of the people who had been hurt because I've noticed that over the past few months, as soon as the names of men that people like are involved, everyone gets very defensive. And they start belittling the women, they start belittling the stories, and it's shocking to me that anyone ever comes out but after that, but I also feel like once we focus on names, that becomes, we, we can't make that systemic change that needs to be made. So my hope was to talk about stories and to talk about sort of, okay, these are changes that need to be made. We need to look at conferences. We needed to look at the way authors are behaving on tour. We need to look at the way uh, we can protect teachers and librarians and booksellers from those authors. What kind of changes can we make to the structures to keep this from happening again? What happened after that? was there had been an article in School Library Journal about the designation from the SCBWI board from, of, of David Diaz, who had had sexual harassment complaints against him. In that comment section, as always happens, people went in and said, oh my God, but I love him. He's such a great mentor. He's been so good to me. I don't believe this. And this, so this happened in January. My survey came out in February. I, and right after it came out, people went back to those comment sections saying, no, I was in Anne's survey and David Diaz was the person who had harassed me. And then that sort of kept evolving and someone said, well, why haven't we brought up Jay Asher? And that led to a bunch of people naming names, some of it from personal experience, some of it from hearsay. And that got us to this place. <laughs> So you do make the connection that several of the situations revealed through your survey would not be covered by sexual harassment laws because they happened outside of the workplace and in informal settings at conferences. So how has that impacted the way that women could report abuse and what we've seen happening in those informal settings since your survey came out? Well, I think, you know, what happened in that, that comment section just shows that there is no way to report it or that if you did report it, nobody was listening. There, there wasn't that any kind of, of structure for reporting. But also, you know, I discovered when people did, maybe they call up a publisher and say, look, your author did this to me. And then the publisher would respond by not sending that author to this bookstore anymore. But they're still sending them on tour. They're still sending them out to just go and harass other people. You know, the other thing you find out, and of course, is that within the publishing industry, within communities, with, within uh, businesses, with actual HR, that didn't help. I mean, people would still report, oh, my superior did this to me, and it would get brushed off, or they would be kind of pushed out of the company. Our structural issues are such that even when there's a conventional HR, things aren't happening. But so then what do you do when this huge 
amazing best-selling author that everybody loves comes to your bookstore and gropes you, who are you going to report to? And if you do report, what's going to happen? So consequences often seem to happen to the booksellers. That author didn't come to their bookstore anymore. And that is that affects sales, that affects prestige. We had women who would stop going to conferences, which affects the sort of the opportunities that they get. This was all, even though this isn't in a conventional workplace, it still functions as workplace harassment because it's denying women opportunities. I find it interesting kind of not being in the publishing industry, how you know you can listen to these stories and it's it opens up that bigger conversation that this is not necessarily industry dependent. You're hearing these same right. stories across multiple industries. And I think it's surprising that industries where we wouldn't think is happening, it is happening. So as you said earlier, this is a larger conversation about us in society and the power structures that are in place and how we it's, deal with it. Well, it's true. Although I would like to challenge the notion that this is somehow confusing for people because it's an informal setting. I witnessed this sort of stuff in the middle of conferences. Mm -hmm. Like, you've paid to be there. And people who are, say, on the board of an organization who are being compensated in one way or another to be there are taking advantage of that. It's not Mm -hmm. unclear. Even if you're sitting in a bar with a bunch of other authors and say you're rating the looks of women who are Mm -hmm. passing, I'm sorry, that's not professional. That has nothing to do with publishing books. And if that is confusing for people, then my jaw hangs open. It's just not that confusing. I remember uh, someone responded in my survey and she was uh, talking about conference harassment and she said, it should go without saying, but faculty members should not try to hook up with conference attendees. And I'm like, yes, it should go without saying, but apparently it doesn't. And the problem is when it is not said, people seem to feel that they have free reign to do it and that behavior is tolerated. So, you know, what we need to do is we need to say, no, this isn't okay. And we need to give people avenues to report it because when we don't do that, this stuff happens, as Martha says, under plain sight and nobody does anything. And so this has changed some of the policies of the major conferences. So SCBWI has changed their conference policies. How do you feel about that? Are we moving the needle in the right direction? You know, I I think that the SCBWI is working hard in changing policies. I think institutions are made of people. Mm -hmm. And insofar as people are truly embracing the challenges and being honest with whatever institution you happen to be at, you know, whether it's a school or a conference organization or, or what, we have to take this seriously. We have to care deeply about it. And protecting the fortunes of men who've behaved badly is simply got to stop being a priority. I think that's exactly right. I mean, you see, we've seen some aggressive actions from conferences and from book festivals of putting out anti-harassment policies. And you see sort of what's behind that is some people saying, oh my gosh, what we've done hasn't been enough. We're going to do this right now. And others saying, oh, we did great before, but now that people are talking about it, we're going to do this, but it's still great. And I don't think this conversation is complete without examining the culture that allowed this stuff to thrive in the first place. In terms of publishers, you know, we had a couple of people ejected from the industry because of the pattern of harassment, because of very public accusations. 
the question is what's happening when those conversations are private and that I don't know. We, we have seen what has happened when it's a PR problem. What happens when it's a personal problem? What are publishers going to do? Are they still more interested in protecting these headliner men or are they interested in protecting the you know, younger writers, the, their, their own publicists, the booksellers, the librarians, the teachers? And that's something that I don't know, and I really would love to see more discussion of that. There has been discussion in the American Library Association regarding policy. This oh, happens great. not only, and this has been going on probably when I first heard about it, and there was a big push online, was around 2013, I believe. Uh, yes. But, <laughs> but it does happen with authors and librarians quite a bit as well at the American Library Association, and there was a big push to get sexual harassment policies in American Library Association because you also have an issue that librarians treat certain white male authors as rock stars. When you go to one of these publisher dinners, of which I attend a lot, two things happen. Number one is everyone gets upset if they are not placed at a table with the big star and they're placed at a table from a debut author or a female author or a woman. <laughs> because they want the connections to these rock stars as opposed to, right. you know. And then the other thing that happens, and I've seen this happen many times, in person is that a rock star author will have inappropriate conversations at these dinners. I am very comfortable and I am secure in my job because it is not because of the type of job that I have. I am a tenured university person, right? Professor, I am the one that is promoting their books as well and will not if I don't like you. But I'll say, excuse me, I don't think this is appropriate conversation. But Melanie. Yes. You have a position of power. Yes. Imagine being the author. I was at one of these dinners just a few weeks ago, and a man whose name has been associated with some of this Me Too stuff in the children's industry was described by one of the attending teachers as literally a rock star. His good looks were commented on, and here I was standing there. I'm the guest at this dinner. Am I supposed to push back? Um, Am I supposed to say, oh, by the way... Here's the headlines about this person. And so this is where it is absolutely essential that teachers and librarians cease with the lionization of any author. We're just people, all of us. And it, but it's especially rankling when we've traveled across the country and are away from our work and are away from our families and children. And because we are not a deadly handsome man, we're considered uh, part of the furniture. And when these things are happening, yes, I am definitely more in a position of power as to why I was invited to these dinners. But if someone is not feeling that comfortable and these uncomfortable conversations are happening and nobody steps up and says, this is uncomfortable, this is not appropriate conversation, and then whispers about it you know, behind the scenes, that also need, allows the behavior to be perpetuated. Well, and that's true. And one of the issues, uh, I think it was... Uh, there was a professor pointing this out, maybe Laura Jimenez, it was about that we our industry is terrible at conflict, too. We want everyone to like each other. But, of mm-hmm. course, the and that always, always privileges the, the dominant narrative. And that privileges the guy cracking the horrible sex jokes in front of children, for instance, or, you know, humiliating women. We don't know how to call people out. We don't know how to say that's not appropriate. I wouldn't, just like Martha, if, if everyone is talking about how cute some guy is, I wouldn't 
be able to be like, oh, I'm so- I'm sorry, ladies, you're really perpetuating misogyny. You know, <laughs> we, don't, <laughs> we don't we don't know how to do any of this. Mm-hmm. But I think the best way to start is to say, hey, is is to talk about the culture of the rock star author and what that does, and maybe that will you know give one person the vocabulary at that table to say, you know, this makes me uncomfortable because what we have found and the thing that I I found very clearly in my survey was if you start treating these men like rock stars, they act like rock stars, by which I mean just freely grabbing women, harassing them, feeling entitled to them. There was one librarian who said this guy was, again, some really prominent bestseller, was really aggressively hitting on her. And she said no. And he said, well, no one's ever said no to me before. And I'm just thinking, A, I don't think that's true, dude. But B, like, that's what he like, I'm guessing if we look back, that's not true. But that is what he thinks, that everybody wants to sleep with him. You see the same thing with these guys who went to conferences, who just went to the conference every year to get laid. Like, this is, this is now how they're thinking. And that is something that the publishers are responsible, but it's something that all of us are responsible for, too. And we need to step back from that. And that is, again, another great time to be like, let's just bring a Native woman in. How about we do that? How about we bring in a woman of color? How about instead of these same six guys, we bring in someone else? I think it's also important to point out who these men are targeting. They are targeting either librarians with no power or women, especially newer to the industry. So either I am completely not desirable or I have too much of a position that would not be threatening to them because I personally have never been hit on, nor have others who are in my position. Right. But yet I hear a lot of these stories from teachers, librarians, other authors. So that is also this power structure is really important to consider. There was this uh, kind of <laughs> amazing and devastating pushback. Someone wrote, the writer David Perry wrote a really long examination of Daniel Handler's public behavior from the National Book Award watermelon joke to a pattern of sexually humiliating other authors and making sex jokes in front of kids at school visits. Are you aware of his response to Gwenda Bond's petition online and her comment section? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. I'm sorry. Can we, let me, I just want, want to finish my thought, but I can't oh, remember. Sorry. Well, no. you were talking about, I think, power and how, you know, like. like oh, um, yeah. Thank the, you. Okay. And so some guy who was like a news editor at Bloomberg tweeted like, oh, this is great. So some unpublished author can just accuse a best-selling author of sexual harassment because he made a bad joke. And like, there was so much to unpack in that tweet. First of all, none of the women who uh, had actually spoken up in that article were aspiring writers. They were all either well-established librarians or published authors. But the fact is, usually it is aspiring writers getting paid on, and they are not less credible because they are aspiring. And Daniel Handler is not more credible because he is best-selling and in, in a position of power. But somehow that is what we think, that an aspiring writer is somehow less credible. And so that is often who these guys are targeting. And do that Bloomberg you- guy took the, his tweet down by the way, after I said, uh, I, I used the language of his tweet and called him, you know, as you said, he was um, getting facts wrong. And if you want to hit a reporter where it hurts, say that. <laughs> I think we should all walk around with Martha with next to us because I totally envision you, Martha, being like, um, excuse me, that is misogynistic behavior. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, 
Yes, Martha is goals for everybody. Martha gets us all straight. <laughs> so I, sorry, because we were talking about uh, Daniel Handler, and then, um, so the writer Glenda Bond put together a pledge on appearing at conferences with sexual harassment policies, and uh, Daniel Handler signed it. And a very brave writer said, hey, Daniel, you know, you have this pattern of behavior, and you, uh, you said, are you a virgin to me in front of a bunch of other authors? And that was really humiliating. And later you made an orgy joke. And then other people started to come out and say, you said this to me, you said this in front of my kids. Meanwhile, these women are getting DMs from everybody saying, oh, yes, he said something like that to me, but I'm too scared to say anything. And what happened from there is there was a lot of silence. And then I think, and then this article came out, I'm sorry, right before this article came out, Handler posted a, oh, yeah, my, not everyone gets my jokes. I was sexually assaulted once piece you know um, it, it was we started out not apology apologies it, it has uh, come to his attention to <laughs> sorry <laughs> i remember how sorry it has come to my attention that these things are being said like like you know his attention was directed only toward his art and when the little people let him know um, <laughs> and by the way you know there's stories of his own sadness that he will save for a later date and you know and the thing is that the reason it came to his attention it, it seems to be is that people are finally taking opportunities away so he was supposed to be the commencement speaker at Wesleyan and the Wesleyan student body and the Wesleyan alums were like hey remember when this guy had the microphone a few years ago and he racially humiliated a woman remember and then these stories started coming out. I'm like, okay, do so you remember this too? Maybe, maybe we should give the microphone to Anita Hill instead, who's also getting an honorary degree. And this is this seems to be, you know, in some ways the way to get this attention. So this guy had this pattern of behavior. The National Book Award thing happened. Nobody really took anything away from him except for like a pocket of change, which didn't seem to be that much money for him. But then he's just allowed to keep going. But now people are taking opportunities away. So will he change his behavior? Uh, we actually have Gwenda Bond's blog post with her petition and then the comment section pulled up. And what I think is really interesting, prior to Daniel Handler responding and posting on these comment section a while, we had a white woman who posted a comment after many people had posted in the comment section about Daniel Handler and his inappropriate remarks. And there was a woman who said, I'd also like to add something about Daniel Handler, whom I've met a couple of times. This might be an unpopular thing to say, but I do think he's a decent guy who clearly has a caustic sense of humor and a history of telling jokes. And it went on to defend him. And then Gwenda even mm -hmm. replied to that. For what it's worth, I don't think anyone here is saying Daniel Handler is a predator. I think people are just asking that he examine whether he is down with the full impact of certain types of humor on women in various contexts. And then shortly after, she did give him the opportunity to respond. So I think it's very interesting that white women, even those who are signing pledges and creating pledges, are still defending white men. It's not about sex, right? Conference shenanigans are not about sex. They're about power and what you can get away with. Daniel Handler's obnoxious and hurtful comments, they were about what he could get away with. And he has all the power when he's making people laugh. And it's when it's at the expense of others, that is an injustice. And that, I think, is, there's such an interesting display of power happening here when you have, you don't even have to defend yourself. You have all of these white women piling on to tell everyone, oh, in, in this, 
they're shaming the other women. Oh, you just don't have a good sense of humor. You don't get it. Oh, he's just funny. That's just Daniel being Daniel. And this is this power of you've created a narrative for yourself and you have these other women that you have these white women who are going out and are able to repeat it to silence people. It's really a fascinating and utterly depressing pattern. Well, and think about how benign it says when you do that tautology. This is Daniel being Daniel. This is Donald Trump being Donald Trump. This is Jeffrey Dahmer being Jeffrey Dahmer. And no, it's not. And this is another interesting, uh, going off on on the serial killers, (laughs) as we were, you know, we talk about separating the art from the artist. Like, everybody has a line. If Jeffrey Dahmer wrote an amazing picture book, we're probably not going to hand sell it, right? We're probably not going to be like, oh my God, my kids love this book. (laughs) Like, a a friend of mine used the line, if if Charles Manson wrote an amazing portal fantasy, (laughs) right? We're not going to be teaching it on the college level as a master of crap. We're not going to be giving it to our kids. The fact is that the Daniel Handler's watermelon joke was not over the line for our dominant culture. And for our dominant culture, sexual harassment is not necessarily over that line. But that's because of whose voices we're privileging. If you think about, say, you know, you are teaching teaching a high school class, you have an author where there's stories about sexual harassment out there, and you have kids who have been sexually harassed, and they're trying to figure out whether or not to talk. What does that do to those kids when you hold up this work and say, oh yeah, that happened, but we're going to separate the art from the artist? What is that doing to the girls? What is that doing to the boys? What does that do to the conversation? So do you have advice for what we can do to start changing that culture, how we can demystify the cult of the rock star authors? Well, I think that Melanie's audit is a really good idea. Looked, I was on Instagram yesterday and a male picture book creator said, oh, they're cleaning out the shelves at this library and, you know, reorganizing things. And look, here's my name with all these greats. It was his name with nine male writers and one woman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's absurd. And that is unacceptable. And so that's the first step in doing it. And then I think the second step is that when you turn any creator into a rock star, you're making their work more difficult for them. Stop doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Writers are just people and trying to convey the human experience. And we're supposed to think deeply about our world and the power structures. And when all of a sudden we get swept up into them, you're making it hard for us to see. I very much appreciate what Kate Messner is now doing in some mm-hmm. contracts that sh- when she is asked to be on panels, she will only agree to be on panels if there is diversity represented and it is not all white men and her. And I think that that is a great first step as well. It's a great first step. And, you know, this is something that Kate has been doing very quietly for a long time. And it's funny because now suddenly, you know, some white men are doing it and then it's become much more loud because they get six times the credit, right? <laughs> and the money. But, and the money. Of Kate's course. a real rock star, you guys. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, Kate is. <laughs> but there's also a conversation to be had about, okay, so then what happens when you have five white guys and one woman of color? What are you doing? What is that poor, what position is that poor women in? Who is still controlling the conversation and what kind of images are you putting out? I, th- I think we need to look at panels, not just as in terms of like, oh, we have to have better representation, but we're going to have better conversations the more diverse it is, the more people of color there 
are, the more women there are, the more gender balance there are, the conversation is going to simply be better. And those people from who are not traditionally given the microphone are going to be better able to talk if they're not alone. Ruth Bader Ginsburg had a really interesting observation. Someone said, you know, when will you be satisfied with the number of women on the Supreme Court? <laughs> and she said, when there are nine. And it's a really interesting thing. Like, we would be all, whoa, that's crazy. And yet we accept the totality of a panel being men all the time, you know, very often in middle grade, and especially when it comes to humor. And there is no greater form of power for middle schoolers and middle grade kids than humor. Yeah. And we're just yes. giving it to the men all as, the time. As someone who works heavily with publishers to moderate those panels and be in while involved in putting them together, uh, something I run up against is that they want to promote certain authors that they want to bring to the conferences and... I refuse to moderate a panel that is not diverse or completely women, as Martha and I did recently. And I, I have gotten some pushback, but I have stood firm, and they are listening. Hopefully, and I think that just needs to happen. It is, again, talking about power structures, it is, you know, it is hard enough to make the ask, and then it is, then it is hard to push back. But if people continue to push back, if people continue to ask for this, I think real change will actually happen. Publishers want to respond to what people want. And so, you know, start asking, asking for those women of color and change the idea of what the publishers think people want to see. There was uh, NCTE last year, there were these pictures coming out of a certain publisher who had a breakfast and there's just one author after another coming out of the breakfast and they were all men and it was like the crowd greeting these men coming out like it was the Oscars or something like that like that publisher thinks that people only want to see men well I can tell you that I saw I saw the lineup and I turned down the invitation yes and that's wonderful and I think that's something else we need to ask more people to do and more people to see what's happening when you do that. See what's happening, not just to your bookshelves, but see what's happening to the kids in your school when they see something like that. What's going to happen to them and what do we want to do about it? So what do you want teachers and librarians to understand about this controversy and what advice do you have for them on how they can share this information with their students to make their students aware? I was thinking about this a lot, and right now we are, the authors we are talking about are largely young adult authors. So the kids in these classrooms are dealing with sexual harassment. That is going on in their schools. And this seems like a wonderful opportunity to talk about what harassment is, how it affects people. I would suggest that the teachers come armed with facts and with ways to support the people that don't feel comfortable talking. You know, we, the dominant voices in that conversation are going to be people who are perhaps less informed about the impact of harassment. And the people who are the quietest might be the ones who have been actually traumatized by harassment. So come prepared with provocative questions, come prepared with ways to support those people that don't feel comfortable talking. But this is a great way to have a conversation about, about what harassment is and about power and about inequities. And that's a way to empower all of the kids in the class. And I think, you know, it's always useful to underscore the idea that injustice 
like this is about power. It's not about sex, being racist. It's not about the color of skin. It's about the power you get yeah. from centering yours. And so, you know, I just think it's it's incredibly important for people to understand this. And frankly, in my experience, the kids are much better at this than the adults. Yeah. <laughs> the kids are way ahead of us. And that it's actually... Again, our dominance of the conversation is drowning out these extremely savvy voices. I think it's been a very interesting conversation that's gone in a lot of unexpected directions. So I'm, I'm very pleased with what we've got so far. Um, I'm glad that I'm not the one that has to edit it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. No, it'll be fine. And I think what we're also going to do, just to give you two some context, is we were going to talk to some librarians and, and booksellers if we can. And also, I think you brought up a good point, talking to students about their ideas about sexual harassment would be very a good addition to this. And see, you know, what do you think? Would you read a book if an author said X, Y, Z? Can we borrow like Lucy or Alice? <laughs> We've got some teenagers around, some resident <laughs> teens that we can tap on the shoulder. So is there anything that we haven't asked you or that hasn't come up that you wanted to talk about? There's a temptation to redeem everybody. Mm. Um, it's like, oh, but we, you know, they're good people, and we know they're good people. Good people make mistakes, and good people often have biases. This does not mean that anybody you know, is to be cast off of the island, but it just means that we all have more work to do, and that's what we're here for. I think that's a really good point. And I think also, in addition to wanting to look at everything, everyone is either good or bad in all one way. We also, you know, we so want to privilege the narrative of the guy at the center of it all. And there are some cases where I think maybe someone can be, can sort of recover. But there are other cases where maybe we don't need this person in children's books anymore because maybe they've hurt too many people who then have to see them. I think we need to start privileging the victims over the people who have hurt them. And that's a really hard shift to make, but we need to start seeing the people who have been silenced or excluded because of the mere presence of the person who's harassed them in the industry. And I think there's a certain point where if you hurt enough people, if you use your power to hurt people, you just don't get to write children's books anymore. This is a privilege. This is a joy. We get to create books for kids. And there are certain things where I think you just don't get to do it anymore. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I'm, when we were talking about this topic, you're the first two that came to mind. Oh, thank you. So I'm just really happy that you were willing and able to share your opinions and expertise with us. You just heard our interview with Anne Ursu and Martha Brokenbro. So I think that was an interesting conversation and it brought up a lot of emotions and a lot of ideas and a lot of places to start a dialogue about gender and diversity and the Me Too movement and power structures. And I think it's really important that we don't shut people out of these conversations. What I would like to see happen now is really to to look at the allies that we have and look at the different perspectives that people have because, of course, Melanie, your experience as a woman is different than my experience of a woman and it's different than Kristen's experience of a woman. And so really seeing where people are at and having discussions about how we can move forward I think is a great next step. When we started talking about this and we've talked about 
bringing Anne and Martha in and having the conversation with them to get their perspectives. Something that you and I had also talked about is asking other people their opinion, other people who worked in the industry, including other male authors. And I remember hearing about Newbery Honor winning author Adam Gitwitz had sent out a Twitter message basically saying, men, many of us are allies we need to start having a conversation amongst ourselves as to how we can be better. And I know that he set up, I believe, a private Facebook group or a private listserv somewhere so that men could have a space where they could start talking amongst themselves about what they can do to be better and to be more aware of the issues and to try and take a stronger stand to be an ally. What can they do if they're seeing something happening? Where is their part in the conversations? So I asked him if he would be interested and willing to be interviewed for this podcast to provide a male point of view. And he thought that his voice at this time to be interviewed was not what needed to be heard. And so he wrote me a statement and gave me permission to read it out loud. So Adam's response is, My feeling is that men need to take a moment to shut up and listen some more as we tend to stampede into situations and announce our virtue and morality while drowning out women's voices. I deeply support what Anne is spearheading and I and plenty of other men are working to figure out how we can support women in this industry and in this moment. I think the best way for me to do that for the moment is to listen. I think that's an interesting point because I think you brought it up when we were talking to you about diversity in books and the different perspectives and points of view from the the books about rape. How when one is told from the perspective of a boy who possibly committed rape, he's like, how could I have done that? So I think it is important that they take time to listen to what it is we're saying. There might be, you know, yes, there are probably some men who absolutely know that they're taking advantage of the power structure that they're in. But there might be others that are like, oh, crap, it was seen that way. And just to understand our perspective and listen and not rush in and save us. And <laughs> Well, and I think it changes the way we talk to each other as well and that we talk to our male colleagues. Because, you know, in, in hearing some of the things, I was like, oh, am I objectifying men? Am, right. am I sexualizing authors that I shouldn't be? You know Absolutely. what? You, it, it really... Like, let's all take a look at what we're doing and and figure out what is appropriate, what makes people uncomfortable, and be respectful of other people. And I think that's the point. We have to look internally to make sure that we are understanding, are we crossing anybody's line? Where is the Where line? Where is the line? My line might be here, yours might be somewhere else, and just because I might be comfortable with something, you might not be, and I need to be aware of that as a, as a human being, as a respectable person. <laughs> right, and I think as people who think that they're hilarious and like to make jokes all the time. <laughs> and it also depends on who the other person is. Mm-hmm. Like, I might have some male friends that I'm really close to and we can joke around and they'll know that my intent might be jokey or I'll know that theirs might be jokey, but we're also close enough that we'll call each other on it Right. versus someone that I might not know very well or me objectifying someone. Right. I, I think that that line is tricky. Well, and the line changes yes. and the conversation changes when power 
comes into play. And that idea of young people coming into an industry, looking towards the experts in their field for mentorship and guidance, and it's when that relationship is taken advantage of, and for whatever reason, that's where it starts to become very dangerous and wrong. And that's what we need to be talking about when those power structures end up with sexual harassment or assault. And I think we should be clear, too, that this isn't an isolated problem. You know, there are a lot of stories in the news about what's happened in the entertainment industry. And, you know, this is in the book industry. And so it's like, oh, it's it must be those creative types, right, that are just running amok. But it is something that happens in STEM fields and in academics and other places where there is an imbalance of power and people who need mentors to get into the system. So I I think... Even though our discussion right now is about this particular industry, it's important as we look to build the STEM pipeline, and it's it's really across any industry. And if one of our goals is to bring more females and more underrepresented populations into the STEM fields, those issues exist there too. They're looking for mentors. They're looking for people to help guide them into the industry. And we want to make sure that that power dynamic is not taken advantage of or you won't see more women in the STEM fields because it would be a hostile place. I'm not saying it is. As someone who was a female in the STEM fields in the 80s and 90s, or 90s, how do we make the field welcoming, know that they can get the support as needed, but it is not a place that is predatory? So we hope that this episode was interesting and will start some great dialogues between students and teachers and librarians and parents as well. And you can find all of the things that we've referenced, including the books and the articles in the STEM Read podcast show notes. So thanks for listening and try not to sexually harass anyone this week. (laughs) If you like the STEM Read podcast, leave a review on iTunes or connect with us on Twitter. Support for the STEM Read podcast comes from Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. The STEM Read podcast is produced in collaboration with WNIJ. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.